well, as I was um, working on this message for us this week, I caught an interview with a woman named Ada Calhoun in New York City. Ada has just finished a new book called Why We Can't Sleep. And uh, she said in this interview, our generation tends to judge ourselves based on everything. Are you a good parent? Are you good at work? Is your house nice? Are you in shape? Are you recycling? Like it's every single factor in life you have to excel at. And I think that level of pressure is unsustainable. Why We Can't Sleep is the name of her book. Why We Can't Sleep. And I'm listening to this interview while I'm studying the book of Daniel and I'm reading about uh, another man who can't sleep. And his name is Nebuchadnezzar in the sixth century BC. And I'm reading in Daniel chapter two, verse one. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And then Daniel chapter four, verse five, again, he says, I saw a dream that frightened me my fantasies in bed and the visions of my head terrified me. And again, not sleeping. I, I wonder if both are not sleeping precisely because they're trying in their own way to accomplish the same thing, to excel at too much. They both are very accomplished people, but I wonder if that, maybe it's that they don't excel at too much, but they're trying to excel at the wrong things or judging themselves by the insecurities of the world. Of course, the, our purpose this morning is not to figure out how to sleep well, although that would be nice, but really to learn how to live well. How do we live a life that reflects not this world, but a better world? The Bible has a metaphor for this, and the metaphor is exile. I'd like to explore that that, that, that idea of exile uh, with you for the next five weeks as we study the book of Daniel together. What is an exile? What is it that's compelling about this image? An exile, of course, is one who doesn't sleep in their own bed. An exile is somebody who's been separated from their home. An exile is somebody who lives in one place, but with the customs of another place. An exile is somebody who's bicultural. Over the next five weeks, we'll understand how it is that we might consider ourselves exiles, no matter where we're from, and our teacher will be Daniel. Uh, so today, I'd just kind of like to introduce a few of the main ideas that we'll be working with over the next several weeks, and uh, and. and we're going to jump into the story of Daniel, kind of in the middle, where we meet Nebuchadnezzar uh, dreaming. So let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, verse 24 through 35, which is on page 78. You split the Bible in the middle, more or less, and you get Psalms turned to the right, and you'll get uh, Daniel. It's one of the prophets there. And I want to share with you three lessons as we study Daniel today. Uh, and, uh, talk about an exile's discomfort, an exile's vision, and an exile's lowliness. Uh, let, let me read Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 through 35. Just follow along as I read. When I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're hearing God's holy word. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, 
whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon, bring me in before the king, and I will give the king uh, the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who can tell the king uh, the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show the king the mystery that the king is asking. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed were these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be hereafter. And the revealer of mysteries disclosed to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me because of any wisdom that I have more than any other living being, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You were looking, O king, and lo, it was a great statue. This statue was huge. Its brilliance extraordinary. It was standing before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked on, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Pretty cool story. What does it mean? Wait a minute, wait a minute, we'll come to that. Let's begin with an exile's discomfort. You remember that Jesus tells us that you are to live in the world, but not of the world? Do you remember that Peter refers to followers of Jesus as aliens and strangers? Do you remember that Paul said, you are citizens of heaven? This is something that Daniel would understand. Verse 25, if you have your Bible open, um, Arioch, the executioner, says, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man. Daniel's barely a man at this point. It was when he was 16 years old that he was uprooted and taken from Jerusalem, from Judah, taken from his home, taken from his family, taken from his faith community, displaced, kidnapped, stolen away by an enemy power, taken to Babylon, where he's given a new life, a new name, a new identity. You know, they change his name. Belshazzar is a Babylonian name. It's a reference not to the God of the Israelites, but to the God of the Babylonians. The culture is 
consciously and unconsciously in Babylon, squeezing Daniel into its mold, fashioning him after its own image. But Daniel resists because he's an exile. An exile is someone who learns to accept the discomfort of a foreign place, to become comfortable with the discomfort in that place. And I think you and I have something to learn from Daniel because the great temptation for all of us, and it's just human nature, is to do whatever we have to do to become comfortable, to do what we have to do to fit in, to to be secure, to be liked. It's just natural to start to think the way the people around you think and to to act the way the people around you act. We, We don't even have to think about it. It just happens to us. And yet Jesus you recall, said, woe to you when all speak well of you. See, if we're going to be any good to our neighbors, we can't be like our neighbors. We've got to be like Jesus. We've got to be with our neighbors and for our neighbors, just as Jesus is, but we've got to be like him. There's to be a distinctiveness about the followers of Jesus Christ, and that's a benefit to the wider society around us. What does it mean for Daniel to be a citizen of Judah living in Babylon? That question has prompted me to ask, what does it mean for us to be citizens of heaven living in Seattle? It may mean at times we're not so comfortable. But answering this question is essential to our mission. And I actually think that what God has been doing in making us more culturally and ethnically diverse in recent years is a great benefit to us in this regard. I think UPC, which has historically been a a, a white Northern European cultured church, has a lot to learn from its minorities. Because as the church today moves from the center of American life, more or less, towards the margin, we have a lot to learn from those who have been living fruitfully on the margins of society all along. What does it mean to be a woman in a man's world? What does it mean to be black or brown in a white world? What does it mean to be queer in a straight world? And whatever you think about these people and experiences, we have to acknowledge that they have something to teach those of us who have been living in the majority, who have been living at the center as we move out. Some of us have no idea what it's like to live on the margin, to be a minority, to lose power, to experience this kind of displacement and discomfort to live with an identity that the people around us don't even see, don't recognize, don't understand. And yet this is central to our call as followers of Jesus Christ, to live as exiles. I think our exchange students, you have so much to teach us. Uh, Immigrants among us, uh, you come into our midst and you may have to learn to speak a new language to communicate. You you learn uh, customs and can adopt them so well, but you don't lose your sense of of home, your identity, your sense of self, and your ability to preserve that and to move among others of a different culture is exactly what we need to learn as followers of Jesus Christ. How do we participate in the world around us without assimilating to it? This is the first lesson of an exile. It's to learn how to become comfortable 
with discomfort. As our culture is moving in many ways away from the Lord, we need to learn how to stay with him, whether it's popular or not. We learn that from Daniel. We learn that from an exile. But how do we do that? It's really hard, isn't it? Moves us to the second lesson, which is an exile's vision. An exile's vision. The Bible tells us we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. Doesn't mean we don't use our eyes and see things with our eyes, but it does mean that we see more than what we see with our eyes. We look by faith. And Daniel is the one person in this story that always seems to see more. Notice verse 28, what he has to say to the king. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Uh, we, we read about it. And it is kind of a mystery. It's inscrutable. It's just a little bit of a scary uh, dream. And he, he calls his counselors. He's got this great host of these Chaldeans, these wise men, these scientists, these magicians. And, and, he, and he says, I want you to tell me not only the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself, which is kind of a trick. I, I don't know why he, he does that, other than maybe he's just a little bit tired of the same old, same old stuff that he could guess himself. And, he wants to know that he's talking to people who really actually know truth. And I respect this about Nebuchadnezzar. He seems to be a man who believes in truth. So he says, I'm not gonna tell you the dream so that you could tell me the interpretation and just kind of make something up. I'm gonna ask you, if you could really tell me what it means, then you tell me the dream itself. He's got this idea that in heaven, there's a, there's a mystery kind of in the minds of the gods. And if his counselors can't even tell him what's in his own mind, he's not going to believe them that they could tell him what's in the minds of the gods, right? Let me just try this on you and see how good you are. I'm going to think about something right now, and I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you to see if you can think what's in my head, okay? Here we go. Ready? Is it coming? I'm thinking really hard. No, it's not the Seahawks does involve the ocean. I was thinking about sea otters swimming with them in the surf. Did anyone get that? <laughs> guess that? Come on, if we can't guess what's in the mind of another human being, how could we ever guess what's in the mind of God? And, and, Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar seems to understand this, and Daniel gets it too. These guys are on the same page. Daniel goes, well, nobody, well, nobody can tell you what your dream was. Uh, except for you. And nobody could tell you what it means except for the gods themselves. But then he said, but there is, but there is, and here's the good news, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel believes that. And he, he's willing to live his life by that, to see the world as though that were true. And he has an exile's vision. Let me just take this moment to step back a moment and give you a little bit of background on what we call apocalyptic literature. If you'd like to go to sleep now, this is a good time to do it. Apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. There are two books of the Bible that, that are considered by scholars apocalyptic literature, Daniel and Revelation. There are other places in the Bible where apocalyptic literature shows up. You'll notice it because usually it's where you start to get scared as a reader and you go, what in the world? It gets crazy. There's all kinds of imagery and things you've never seen before described in apocalyptic literature. Most of us have a misunderstanding of what it means. This has kind of popped into pop culture these days. We have a, a zombie apocalypse and apocalypse now. What is apocalyptic literature? 
We tend to think it's something to do with catastrophe or disaster, destruction, war. That is not at all intrinsic to the concept. Apocalypse means uncovering. The word itself literally means uncovering. So an apocalypse is uncovering or disclosing or revealing. That's why the book of Revelation is called Revelation. It's just a translation of the word apocalypse. We call it apocalypse of John. It's an uncovering. So we imagine something is hidden, that there is something beyond our sight, something out of view, something that we don't understand, like a sheet is covering it. And it's there. We might even bump into it, but we don't know what it is. We don't understand it until someone goes, and then all of a sudden, oh, it's been uncovered. It's an apocalypse. That's what it does. Apocalypse looks at the things that we don't understand and pulls for a moment a sheet off, uncovers it, and reveals it, lets you to see for what it is. Now, this literary style emerged in the 6th century BC. There's a little bit of debate around this, but most scholars believe it originates within the Israelite community because it's in the 6th century when Israelite the Israelites were in exile, Assyria and, and, and Babylonia, that their whole way of seeing just collapsed. Their way of understanding the meaning of their lives just dropped out because uh, God's promises and the, and the temple and their home all seemed to be crashing to the ground. And there's this new way of seeing a new way of understanding history, new way of understanding the powers that be. And it's God's way of revealing himself in the midst of crisis to say, I am still here, even in exile. I'm still with you and trustworthy, even in exile. This, this is what apocalyptic literature is always getting at. It's, it's the, a literary form that reflects exactly what Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar. God reveals mysteries. Now, if you know anything about Daniel, you'll remember that he's a man with great courage. You probably remember the, name, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. You may even remember the beginning of the book where he refuses to eat the king's food, and yet he thrives, becomes strong, and he excels in, in, in the government of Babylon. It's precisely his belief in God's ability to reveal mysteries and his capacity to trust in what is revealed when he discovers it that makes him so courageous. Remember, we, we said earlier that those who know their God shall stand firm and take action. It's knowing his God that makes him firm and active in that society. He's not relying on common sense. He's not guessing or inventing what's in the mind of a God. He's listening to the word of the Lord. And that's what we have to do too. It, it, we have to be able to hear God's word and, and then look through the word at the world and to see what's really there as God has revealed it to us. We need to see through the word to the world, put on apocalyptic lenses, so to speak. That's what we learn from an exile. We learn about discomfort. We learn about uh, vision. Uh, thirdly, we learn about lowliness. A lesson here about an exile's lowliness. The Bible tells us that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. That's why this invitation to come to Jesus is so powerful to us. It's when we feel weak and meet him, that we become strong. Paul the Apostle says, I've, I've been crucified with Christ. In the life that I now live, Christ lives in me. I live that life through faith. 
We come now to the surprise in the dream, and the, the surprise of the dream is that what changes everything is not something that's great, it's something that's lowly. Verse 35, the climax of the story, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, if you've studied this before, you, you know that this uh, statue represents four kingdoms. It has four different parts made out of different materials. And the first part is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the head. And then we have the, it's traditionally thought, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians coming next. And then thirdly, the kingdoms of the Greeks. And then the mixed kingdom at the feet is the, the Romans. And Jesus is thought to be the, the stone that comes in the Roman era, the stone uh, that brings it all down and transforms it all into this beautiful mountain, which is the mountain of Zion. This is Zion theology, this mountain where there'll be peace and swords will be pounded into plowshares and prosperity and blessing for the whole world. This just grows and becomes the whole earth. But it starts with something very small, a stone, something very lowly, a stone. It's interesting, how does Daniel know this? Well, Daniel has a dream, so the Lord reveals this mystery specifically to him, but also because I says, hey, Daniel's a man of God's word. He'd been reading God's word. It's familiar to him. And, and we learn in Isaiah 51 that Abraham was thought to be a, a, a stone. Oh, shoot, I didn't write. So you'll have to look at Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. I have a Bible here. Uh, <clears throat> He's a stone cut from the quarry, it says, of Abraham. Listen to me, you that pursue righteousness, you that seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and, the, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father. This is his promise. And then, you know, do you know this Deuteronomy that said Israel's not chosen because they're the greatest, but because they're the least of nations. It's a lowly thing. It's a small thing. And he couldn't possibly understand who Jesus was but he gets a hint in this vision. Deuteronomy, uh, I mean, uh, I, uh, Daniel chapter four, verse 17, Nebuchadnezzar himself will say, as he has a second dream, the most high, this is chapter four, verse 17, the most high is sovereign over the kingdom of mortals. He sets over it the lowliest of human beings. This is pointing to Jesus. The lowliest of human beings ends up being the one who is sovereign over the kingdoms of mortals. And I think this is where our culture gets most confused today. That power comes from greatness. It's a natural thing to believe. But it's just not... It's just not what Jesus is about. Over the holidays, I read a New York Times opinion piece. It's about a woman who's recovering from her alcoholism without Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe you saw this. And she has a problem with Alcoholics Anonymous. And she, the problem, particularly for women, she says, is that Alcoholics Anonymous calls us to acknowledge a higher power. It calls us to humility. And she has a very good point to make about women, and that's that women need to be empowered. They need to find power, not to release it. And there's something true about that. But the question I, I want to consider when I read that article is, where does the power come from? Not from ourselves, not from trying to create it ourselves or assume it ourselves or steal it from other people. This just throws us back on ourselves. At best, it's legalism. At worst, it's blaming the victim. And yet this is what our culture says. We need to get bigger, greater, more perfect, climb this ladder somehow. 
writer Fleming Rutledge, and I'll be returning to her during Lent, she writes that Jesus offers us an alternative mode of power, an alternative mode of power, and that's lowliness. This is what the cross is all about. And by the way, we'll be noticing the cross is the ultimate experience of exile. When we look to the cross, we see how far from home we have really gotten ourselves. We begin to understand that our essential problem isn't social, isn't cultural, isn't political. Those things are real, but they're not at the center. What's at the center is a spiritual problem. It's that all human beings are living our lives east of Eden, banished from the presence of a good and loving God by our sin. When we look to the cross, though, we see what God has done. God has undertaken his own exile for us on the cross. That's what the Son of God, Jesus, has gone to the extremity, as far from the Father's home as he could possibly go, into a curse, into our own shame, into our own, the the penalty for our sin, and to, to death, even if the creed is to be believed, into hell itself. Why? So that we can take his place at home with the Father. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you will never have to call that out to God, your Father. So we don't need to run from our own exile. We just need to meet him there. We'll talk more about this next week. To meet our Savior in our own lowliness and know that, 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 that the lowliest of people is sovereign even there. So three lessons from an exile. An exile's uh, uh, discomfort, an exile's vision, an exile's lowliness. If you're the kind of person that's looking for application all the time, and God bless you, there's a lot to apply here. Uh, We learn to get comfortable with the discomfort. We learn to wear apocalyptic lenses to read the world through God's revelation of the word and to power up with the lowly one to find our strength uh, in the midst of our own weakness in him, the risen one. But let me just say that application isn't always about something that you do. Sometimes it's just something you learn or that you know. And the main point of of the book of Daniel is not that we should do what Daniel does. The main point of the book of Daniel is to look at this God whom he serves. This is a God who is in control in all circumstances. That's the big idea of Daniel. God is always sovereign. He's guiding the hand of history. He's guiding our lives. So the book of Daniel is really just to reassure us even when we're in exile. So if you're in exile this morning, be reassured. That's how you apply. That's how you apply this text. Be reassured. Trust this God. Maybe that would help you start to sleep better. And I want to encourage you to read the book of Daniel. Uh, It's only 12 chapters. Read the first four chapters for next Sunday. And here's what you're going to notice. This is what I notice anyway, that God is trying to speak into our dreams. He wants to speak into your dreams through the night watches. I notice that both Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar are dreaming. But the issue for Nebuchadnezzar is he's always dreaming about himself. You'll see these dreams are always about him (laughs) taking on more, more responsibility, more power. And he gets increasingly troubled. And soon he'll find himself, he's suffering mental illness. But Daniel... Daniel, by contrast, is not living out of the insecurities of the culture. He's not carrying the incessant fears and compulsions of the culture to succeed and excel in every way. In fact, he's not dreaming about himself at all. 
somehow 600 years too early, we'll find Daniel dreaming about Jesus and sleeping like a prince. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we want to say yes to this great invitation to come and find our rest in Jesus Christ, the lowly one. We pray that you'll get us past all of our fears and anxieties and embrace him as he has embraced us. Pray that for ourselves. We pray that for our city. Pray that for our world. May it be to his glory. Him we worship. Him we love. In his name we pray. Amen.